send your rain, O oh Lord. Send your rain, O oh Lord. Send your rain to your people.
Before we begin, I want to spend a few minutes praying, especially for those who are coming uh, or at home right now who are sick, those with um, any burdens that they have brought this morning. I want to take a few minutes and, uh, and just pray for you before we begin our service. So let us pray. Jesus, as we gather this morning, it is your resurrection that has summoned us here. Sunday morning is the morning that you defeated and conquered death and rose from the grave and walked out of that tomb. And we are here this morning in celebration of you. And Lord, we're not alone in meeting this morning. We think of all the churches that surround us in this city of Wilmington and the surrounding areas. We pray for them as well. Lord, we, um, we need strong, healthy churches that are sending out missionaries into these communities around us to spread the good news of Jesus and to be spreading his love to all that are around. We pray for them, Lord. Bless them this morning. Would you grow those churches, Lord? Would you bring about new life in them and, and renewal in those churches? And Lord, right now I pray for anybody who has come this morning who may have family at home or family elsewhere who is sick, any who are um, um, uh, physically have been in pain and even this morning are suffering, Lord, we pray for them. Pray for your healing. We pray for your anointing in them right now, Lord, that you would rid them of uh, their pain, Lord, if they're at home and they're sick and they belong to this church, that you would bring healing to them, Lord, and rid them of their sickness. Lord, for those who are spiritually this morning in poverty, uh, feeling spiritually low and just um, uh, uh, in need of a fresh filling of your spirit, in need of a, of a fresh encounter with you, Lord. Um, people who may have come just burdened with sin, burdened with guilt, burdened with being sinned against, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray for them right now that you would also heal them, Lord that they would have a a new encounter with you this morning that would bring life into them, Lord, that would bring them grace and the forgiveness that they're looking for, Lord, that you would lift that burden off their shoulders, for, Lord, your burden is easy and your yoke is light. And so, Lord, would you do a work in their hearts this morning as we go through your word in the book of Philippians. Just use me, Lord. Um, May your words be out of my mouth and not my own. And I pray that we would have open ears this morning to hear what you have to speak to us and open hearts to receive that word. We love you, Jesus, so much. We love you so much. Pray this in your name. Amen. 
Amen. So we are going to be starting a, uh, I think, subject to change, nine-week sermon series in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Philippians. As you're getting there, I'm going to read the text that we will be going through this morning, beginning in verse 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants, or more literally, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As a word of the Lord. Everyone needs what I like to call a master narrative or a master story, a story that is bigger than ourselves, one that provides a sort of guiding force that, when conformed to, causes you to find purpose and meaning and join in a other community of people in living out that grand story. The story gives identities to its participants. Now, there is something innate, innate, indeed, I think what I could call a religious impulse that brings and causes most all human beings to do this. It is a mixture of our desire and our hunger for meaning, and also to understand, our efforts to understand exactly why we're here and what we do while we're here. It is an outward expression of the inward reality that we are aware of. In and of ourselves, we are not enough. We need something bigger than us that tells us how we are to understand the world and how we are to live in it. Because this is human nature and part of the result, I believe, of the separation between us and God in the Garden of Eden, humans throughout history have continually manifest for themselves these grand narratives that help make sense and order of life apart since we're, you know, physically now apart from God. These grand stories full of religious aspects may vary, but often they contain things like origin stories, founders and heroes and villains and good, you know, versus evil and objects of desire and and sources of of joy. Grand stories can also be in the negative too, as we will see. But as we begin the book of Philippians for the next nine weeks, I want to briefly look at our introduction, okay, to the master story of the ancient Romans. Because 
uh, at Philippi. This was a Roman colony, as we're going to look at. And their culture and their empire had its own version of the Grand Master story of what it means to be alive. And that shaped them and molded them and has a lot to do with the book of Philippians. We need to understand what that is if we're to understand the book itself and why Paul wrote what he did. So Joseph Hellerman, in his fantastic book on the ancient Roman culture, that's I forgot the name of. I didn't put the name of. Um, it is this. It's really good, though. What if you were driving by a billboard on the interstate on 95, let's say down here, and you see a fill-in-the-blank sign that reads like this. By nature, we yearn and hunger for blank. And once we have glimpsed some part of its radiance, whatever that thing is, that blank, when we glimpse some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to do whether it's bear or even suffer in order to secure that blank. What would that blank be? This is a great way to identify that master story that we're going to be seeing this morning. This is a direct quote from the famous Roman orator, Cicero. He, I think he was a contemporary of Paul. The original quote is not a fill in the blank, but it rather reads, by nature we yearn in hunger for honor. And that was the Roman master story. The empire consisted of who's who, division of class, separation, and your class status was your honor or lack thereof. And that was everything. It defined who you are, how you treated others, and how and what you lived for and how you lived your life. There were 50 million people estimated to live in the Roman Empire. And the top 1 million were the elite class of senators, equestrians, ducarians. They were, those were the prominent citizens of the city. And then the non-elites, the other 49 million people, they were freeborn citizens or freeborn not citizens, which means they were never slaves. Then you have freemen who were former slaves. Sometimes they could become citizens, but most of them were not citizens. Then you had the rest that were slaves, conquered peoples who compromised somewhere between 4 to 20% of the empire. Now, the Roman master story was this. Rich and poor, elite and non-elite, Roman citizen or not Roman citizen, freeborn or freeman or slave, this was how they viewed everybody and everything. It was chopped up into bits and pieces just like that. Now, Luke refers to Philippi in Acts 16 as a Roman colony, revealing just how much this city would have been shaped and formed by this worldview, this master story. Roman citizens in this city, um, there's about 10,000 people living in Philippi, and it would have been primarily non-elite Roman citizens who were probably either freeborn or former slaves, living a more blue-collar lifestyle. And from the end of the letter, we can surmise that this Philippian church was probably pretty small, maybe only like 30 people or so, probably a house church. For these ancient peoples, honor was everything. And if you had any sort of advantage over somebody else because of your status, because of your class, say you were a freeborn citizen, your neighbor was a former slave, now a freeman, it was perfectly socially acceptable for you to leverage your social status and honor and take advantage of that neighbor for your own benefit. It can even be said you were kind of expected to do that. As we will see, when Paul planted this church in Philippi, the good news of Jesus immediately came up against this Roman master story, and it challenged it, and it flipped it upside down. 
We're going to see Paul dismantling this story for these early Roman Christians by the new master story, which is of that of Jesus Christ. What about today, though? Do we have master stories in our 21st century Western American world that we live in? We do. It's sort of unique. We're a bit more pluralistic, I think. And Rome had kind of, you know, one big one. We have many today. They come in very many shapes and forms and sizes. So I'm going to go through some of these, okay? And uh, yeah, hear me out. So here we go. One big uh, grandmaster story is patriotism and nationalism. Although most nations have versions of this, in our country in America, this can be a little uniquely intense in some more extreme forms. The American story has along with it an origin story of valor and courage and national heroes, contains values specific to America, combined with music even singing its story. Patriotism in its extreme forms, at least, calls you to not just rejoice in these things, but to conform to the values and its story as your master's story, being first of what you, how you identify yourself. And it calls not only for your participation, but also for your allegiance. Patriotism and nationalism can be good. It can be healthy and not wrong by any means, but in its stronger, more intense forms, it can become almost a form of religion and almost, yeah, uh, have religious aspects. And then we have politics today, which carries with it some of the same connotations. And a rather new phenomenon, political parties today, left or right, carries with it a whole system of values and ethics and what is good and what is wrong, its own heroes and heroines as well. It also carries with it definitions of good and evil and its own path to, def- to overturn the bad, right? Indeed, uh, every president, left or right, doesn't matter, is getting so bad that every political process these presidents have to start claiming almost like messianic abilities to save the country just to be heard because we've bought into how politics is either the salvation of everything or the collapse of everything. And um, it's very much become this master story for many in our current times. There's other master stories as well. Things like your vocation and accomplishments and how much money you have made. Some people cannot think of themselves apart from their own story of accomplishments, leading them to, to find their own value wrapped up in what they have done, or in some cases, what they haven't done, and what they have in their bank account, or maybe what they don't have in their bank account. For me, this was a big deal, a big insecurity struggle for me when I was younger. Uh, when we first got married, we were uh, broke as a joke. And I was working two or three jobs. I was in full-time school. I was working 70-plus hours a week. And I was telling somebody here this week, you know, I call those the dark years, right? When I found a quarter in the, in the couch seat, and I'm like, four of these can make a dollar. This is awesome. Where's three more quarters? Like, it was, it was rough for the first few years of our marriage. And I was insecure about that, you know? I have friends that had good jobs and making money and stuff. And I, I was like, a, I, I saw myself as less than because of my situation. But by God's grace, I survived that. Another master story that, we, uh, that is prominent today is fear. Fear sells, also controls. If you want to be afraid of something, all you got to do is turn on the news. They have plenty of things to tell you to be afraid of, right? Uh, they tell us that we need to live in fear. We need to continually stay glued to their news articles to learn what we are to be afraid of next, If there's nothing to be afraid of, you'll find out that four or five murder hornets showed up recently or something else happened, you know, that they're always trying to incite fear. 
We should also throw in things in America like buying and selling and materialism, the negative side of capitalism, right? I recently saw a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. You might even read a uh, newspaper. Oh, great, you know? I, I do too. I'm, I'm an old soul with stuff like that. Um, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where the husband went to grab the mail and his wife asked if there's anything good. His response, eh, not really, but you got a you're not attractive enough women's magazine with an article on swimsuits that minimize all of your body flaws. Here are some you're not stylish or ostentatious enough catalogs and coincidentally an invitation to go deeper into debt from a credit card company. Oh, here's another magazine telling me about equipment that I need that I don't have and more. And then the husband says, why do I get the feeling that society is trying to make us discontented with everything we do and insecure about who we are? His wife responded, well, I suppose if people thought about real issues and needs instead of manufactured desires, the economy would collapse and we would have total anarchy. It was tongue in cheek, right? But we know the power of that story. There's one more section of the master stories to mention, okay? Often people, oftentimes people's master story are their own failures. What they haven't done or the things that they have completely screwed up. The things they have completely dropped the ball on. Some big sin that almost destroyed your marriage. The time that you got fired because of a bad mistake you made. Also, addictions can become people's master stories. Trauma, someone who has uh, uh, been sinned against or even abused at no fault of their own. And on and on it goes. There are many ways in which we can be dominated by master stories that are outside of ourselves that try to take control of our very identity. Alignment to a master story concerns our worldview, and our worldview brings into it the very loves of our hearts, leading to our actions and how we live and then treat others. This conversation, in my humble opinion, is one of the most important to have in modern times. As controversial as it may be to some ears this morning, some of the stuff I've said, and perhaps look at emails, and that'd be great. I love emails, and I love you know, talking with you guys. We have to do the deep heart work as we properly define what shapes us as Christians. What is our master story really supposed to be? What truly defines who we are? The book of Philippians is ultimately one long explanation of our master story as Christians. None of the above are our primary master story. None of the above calls for the Christian's ultimate allegiance. The truth is, our nation could pass away overnight, and the Lord Jesus would not. All the political parties we have could vanish overnight, and Jesus Christ and his work will not. You see, many of the things that I mentioned above, once again, not all of them are bad things, right? Patriotism and nationalism and our vocation, how much money you made, these aren't all bad things unless they become ultimate in your heart. If they become your ultimate and your first and your primary story, the things that I mentioned that belong to the fallen part of our world, addictions and trauma and those who were sinned against and the like, our master story as Christians finds healing for that. It finds uh, the repair work. It can mend those broken stories back to a new story with a fresh start in being a new creation born again in Jesus Christ. 
So the truth of Christianity that is really amazing is this. The master story of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it offers to every other broken master story in the world, in every nation, in every time period, in every culture, both healing and truth. It flips them all upside down. All of them, it flips them all upside down and shows us the true master story and its values for our human existence. You see the Roman master story and the American ones um, that we've mentioned this morning, um, and uh, that is... uh, there's a commonality in all of these other master stories, okay? And it, it can be summed up, I think, this is my lack of expertise opinion here, I think they can all be summed up as a way to compare yourself to others, right? The effect of who or what is greater or who or what is not greater. Uh, these master stories begin creating rules of comparison, and in those games, there's always a winner and a loser. And again, the master story of Christ flips all that upside down. So what is our master story? We will be continually throughout the sermon series revisiting the verses I'm about to read in Philippians chapter 2 each and every week. I'm going to read these verses now. Um, you only hear them every week. I want to drill them into your psyche. I want to drill them into your brains to where you're just living and breathing Philippians chapter 2 for the next nine weeks because Philippians chapter 2, the beginning of it, this is your master story. This story is where your identity is found. It's the story that Paul wanted the Philippian church to first identify with in their Roman context. That is how we are called to identify and also called to live. Everything else can be considered as rubbish apart from this master story, says Paul. Most scholars even consider Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. It's quite possibly one of the first Christian liturgical hymns that may have even been sung to music in the early churches. So let's read this, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. This is our master story. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And this is where the hymn, if you will, picks up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." When you become a Christian by the filling of the Holy Spirit, you become a living example or embodiment of Jesus Christ himself to this world, a restored and a renewed and a made new human being in his image. This is why we are called the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians. We are God's temple, housing his very spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus' story is the definitive story of the second Adam, the one who showed the world once and for all what it means to live and, what it, and, and to be a human being even within this broken world. The themes that we find in this portion of Scripture that belong to this master story, 
thus belonging to Christians, are, in no particular order, things like unity, being of the same mind, no us versus them mentality here in God's church, but rather unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider everyone is more important than yourselves in all humility. No one is greater or lesser than among God's people. Treat everyone, then, as more important than yourself. Do not look only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Yes, care for your interests, but care for other people's interests as if they are your own. These things and more, as we will see, should describe the very family of God. This is what we are inviting people to join. But why those things? Why those specific things that Paul uh, focuses in on in this story? Because they are ours in Christ Jesus. They are ours in Christ Jesus because... Jesus, in Jesus, they, were, they perfectly describe how Jesus lived. They perfectly describe all the heavenly values of his upside-down kingdom. Paul says he was in the very form of God, but didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or rather something to be exploited. That's what that Greek word means behind it. It wasn't something that he would exploit. You remember, if you're a Roman, this would have meant a lot to you here. Jesus was God. You don't get much higher than that. The elite class in Rome, okay, well, he was God, but he didn't consider his status as something to be exploited for personal gain. But rather because he was God, as I like to argue for the translation, because he was God, he emptied himself of his status and he became a servant. The incarnation. He became a man because love is self-emptying by nature and God is love. And his humility even led to his death for us, his humiliating death for even his own enemies. Because of his humility, God has highly exalted him. And the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is king to the glory of God. This is what we will use as our master story to interpret this book. As we live as Christians, this is how we are to think of ourselves. It's not just belonging to Jesus, because that's not enough. Rather, we are in Jesus by his Spirit. That's why his Spirit's in us. He brings us to be in Jesus, in union with him. We become his body. And the church, then, in some ways, then we kind of start being a manifestation of the good news of Jesus for this world. Our spiritual union to Jesus has empowered us to live in Jesus. And in our 21st century world, actions are going to speak, I think, if you want to understand how to minister and, and to reach out to our culture, it's going to be so much through our actions as we vocalize what the good news is, right? It's going to be so much by seeing how we live as we explain and show the world who Jesus is and tell the world who Jesus is. We need churches living out this master story. It will give color and strength to our evangelism. So let's dive into our actual text this morning. That was a long introduction. Woo! That's okay. It won't be, it's not that long of a sermon. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Introduction sermons are always weird because you're like, how do I introduce a book and then preach? Whatever. It is what it is. Here we go. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants, or literally doulos, uh, slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
To begin with, Paul describes himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus. And this institution, the Roman Empire, was not based on ethnicity, not based on anything like that. It was based on conquered people. They would take over land, and they would take those people and have them basically as like a a servant-based employee for an extended period of time, leading to their freedom about seven to ten years later, if that person would so choose to be free. But Paul, uh, he calls himself a slave, of Jesus. This is the only book where Paul introduces himself in that manner. Knowing our Roman master story to be spoke of, we see how radical it would have been for Paul to talk of himself in this way. Immediately, Paul is at work here to start dismantling this Roman master story. To become a Christian, you need to rise to the status of being a slave of Jesus Christ. This would have been unthinkable as Romans, but for Paul, it revealed the values of the new kingdom of Jesus that was in breaking into this world. And let's continue. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. From the beginning, we can see Paul's deep affection for this church. He prays for them continually, and he does so with deep joy, remembering their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. How do we partner with the gospel? It's an interesting way he phrases that, right? How does one partner with the gospel? How could the Philippian church partner with the good news of Jesus? Whenever you and I embody Jesus, our lives are filled with Jesus in and through our words and actions. Paul's favorite phrase he repeats more than any other phrase in the New Testament is in Christ. Because then when we're in Christ, we are participating in the good news as his body Because Jesus is the good news. He is the good news. This church, as we have seen, the Philippian church, was a huge financial support for Paul and his ministries. They were partnering partnering with him in the gospel for providing financial means for him. Because that is what Christians do. We support one another. We care for one another. In doing so, we are partnering in many ways with the gospel. Then Paul says an extraordinarily encouraging statement that, to these faithful Christians. He says this, The good work that Jesus has begun in you is exemplified in your care and support for me. This is my paraphrase of Paul here. God will carry through. He will carry that good work through, and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Their good work is shown in their partnership with the gospel will be brought to completion on the final day. God is going to be faithful to carry it through. The evidence of his work in their life is only evidence that God has indeed not abandoned them. He is working, and he will continue to work in their lives. With our master's story in mind, Jesus' story did not begin with the incarnation and with his death, but rather it ends with his future exaltation before the whole world, where every knee will bow before him. God's work in Jesus' life will be brought to completion in that day. And if that is true for Jesus, and you are in Christ now, it is also true for you. Emmanuel, just this week I dug up a picture of a Reverend George Falwell here in this building. 
He became pastor of a church called Delaware Avenue Baptist Church in 1866. This church was described in a book I found online recounting the history of the Delaware churches. And I found a little paragraph from its original 15 members describing why they were launching this brand new church. They had this to say. A sister of the Second Baptist Church, from no other motive than to advance the cause of Christ in knowing the need of another church in a growing part of the city, induced 15 members to unite and to form a new church under the name Delaware Avenue Baptist Church. As many of you know, this church turned into Emmanuel Church many decades later. And today, about 155 years later, it's an incredible amount of time, here we are this morning. Through a long history, as Paul said here, and I can repeat Paul's words, I thank God when I think of Emmanuel because of your partnership of the gospel from the first day until now. And Emmanuel, I'm sure of this because you all this morning have stuck it out through thick and thin because you have partnered together with the gospel for all these years because you haven't given up even when things were hard, even when things were confusing, even when things were dramatic. Indeed, as we look to our master's story, Jesus himself went through periods of intense suffering, loss. Just as God will bring his work to completion in Jesus, he is going to bring this church's work to completion at the end as well. It is not finished here, Emmanuel. God is not done with this place. He is still working. He has worked mightily, and he will continue to work mightily until that day of Christ Jesus. Continue on to verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you to my heart. For you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God." The church in Philippi was not scared to join Paul and carry the burdens he faced. Not all churches did so. Paul seemed to be arrested a little more than most pastors seemed to be arrested. Imagine if your pastor continually was in jail when the other surrounding pastors weren't really in jail that much. And after a while, you might think, okay, Paul, so uh, what's up? Why, why you? What's going on? But as we know Paul's story, he was called to bring the gospel to these cities that were very difficult, untrodden territory, right? And he would bring the, this master story of Christ that would buck up against the city's understanding of the world, and they would throw him in jail and persecute the churches. This church wasn't embarrassed by this, but rather they joined with Paul and even were persecuted themselves, and thus became partakers of grace with Paul in his imprisonment and in their confirmation of the gospel. And all of this causes Paul to yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Another reference to that master's story, right? He loves them as Jesus loves them. He is sharing in the affection that Jesus has for them by the help of the Holy Spirit. It could be said that they loved Paul and supported Paul because Jesus loves them and supported them. Their love for one another, as Paul said, brought confirmation of the good news. And this, my friends, is the Jesus-like, cross-shaped family that this letter talks about. That's why I'm calling this sermon series, I think I am, 
Jesus-like, cross-shaped, it might change, but Jesus-like, becoming a Jesus-like, cross-shaped family. They were carrying Paul's burden with them because love always drives us to bear and suffer with one another. Love should always drive you to the depths of humility as you will learn not to love yourself first but to love God and love others, yourself only being a vehicle for such love. Love will bring about you to sacrifice for someone else, for Jesus and for others. Therefore, it can be said that love is inherently cross-shaped as our master story of Jesus shows us. Paul is far from acting like a selfish CEO of some business, speaking with his merely low employees to leverage them for his own personal benefit, but rather he is essentially speaking almost like a father would to his children or like a brother would to his siblings and extended family. His welfare was their welfare and their welfare was his. This is how they loved and cared for one another and it is how God's people are to care and love for one another even here in these four walls. And as we begin to close, I'm gonna read verses 19 and 11 one more time. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernments so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This master story that we live beneath, that we live in beneath our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ, it takes discernment to understand and to see. It is very difficult because the other master stories that surround us are very powerful and they all are competing for your ultimate allegiance. As we said, not all of them are bad or evil or aren't to be entirely rejected completely, but they are not to be your first allegiance. Yet as Christians, right, our first and foremost allegiance belongs to Jesus. How we, how he lived defines who we are. We love as Christ loved. We live as Christ lived. We give to others as Christ gave to us. All that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, his prayer is that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment to discern these things. I want to ask some questions as we close to try to probe your hearts this morning. Do you approve of this master story of Jesus? And I, you know, hear me out. Paul wants the church to know exactly what they should approve of in order that on that final day we may be presented blameless in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes in our human life, there can be this knowledge action gap from our, the things we know to be true and yet have not embodied in practice. That gap usually exists because although you may know something is true, your actions don't quite line up with it because your heart has other loves that are up and against what you know to be true. James K. Smith, philosopher from um, Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, he says this way in his pointed book that I highly recommend. He says, you are what you love. What does your heart love, right? And that's what the gap is. If you know something to be true, but you aren't living it out, what's your heart truly love? You may know something's true, but where's your heart's love lie? Are you wrapped up in another master story this morning that is up and against the master story of Jesus? Knowing that this question is a little contradictory, but hear me out, next question. Are you known as a person of humility? In one of those recent Marvel movies, I don't know which one, my kids made me watch them. I kind of liked them, I don't know. But um, uh, I kind of predicted what they all are about from the day one, but anyway. In one of those Marvel movies, one of the characters jokingly said, modesty, I like it. I too am extraordinarily humble. 
And I'm trying to, you know, sidestep that vanity to say, are you humble? Yes, I am. That's not really what I'm asking. But I'm trying to at least provide some kind of gauge for you to ask honest questions. C.S. Lewis had to say this about humility. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. How important are other people to you? How much do you like to talk about yourself and your own story? Are you willing to be wrong and even corrected by others? Paul's words in these introductory verses exudes with humility. In a way, you could say Paul was sharing in the humility of Jesus by the help of the Spirit. Does that mark your life? Just a few more questions. Is there another master story in your life that you, that you have attempted to mesh with Jesus' master story? Is politics front and center in your own life? Have you allowed any American master story of nationalism or political identity to take the attention and allegiance of your heart before that of Christ? Are you willing to be strangely other, not quite fitting into the ideologies and systems of this world, but being more concerned about your participation and identity in the master story of Jesus, thus living the truly human life that God desires us to live, a life rich in the fullness of joy that is found in Christ? Next question. Have you allowed your past sins and failures to brand that scarlet letter on you? Do you feel like Hester standing before that crowd with letter A forever stitched into your shirt? Have you allowed those things to become who you are? How can you throw off that old self that Jesus has done away with? All the sins that he has paid for and washed away and dealt with. How can you forever throw those things off and realize that that person is dead? Those mistakes you've made, those sins that you have committed, they are long gone. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it is time this morning that you embrace this new identity. You are new in Jesus. He has risen you to new life. Embrace it. The next and last question. New beginnings means the chance to forge new mission and new vision. And I'll show my cards really early on here. All that we've spoken of this morning is what I want Emmanuel to be about. And even much more than that, I want us to be known as. They will know us by our love for one another. They will know us as we embody Jesus together. The key to this is love, self-giving love and humility and sharing in the affection of Christ Jesus, as Paul said in these verses, sharing that affection for one another. And I can end on an encouraging note. Emmanuel, you are a deeply loving and caring church. My family has been so loved already. It's only been a few weeks. I can't wait for the, few, the, the years to come. You, in many ways, have indeed embodied these things. And the city of Wilmington, with all of its brokenness, and all the surrounding areas, with all of its brokenness, and in in the, in all of its need, They are hungry to see churches caring for each other and carrying each other's burdens just as Jesus carried ours. They need to hear of the salvation available in Jesus Christ. They need to see its effects in our life. The city needs us. And may God's grace assist us in embodying this master story of Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, um, thank you for this text. I'm so thrilled to have preached this, Lord. Um, I, I pray for your spirit, Lord, um, right now, whatever you have spoken, Lord, Luther talked about giving room for the Holy Spirit to preach to us, Lord. I, I, you know, even right now, I want to just pause for a minute, Lord. I want to give a, a, what may be awkward in our day today, just quiet.
to listen to your spirit. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Whatever you had to say this morning, I pray just in the next minute as we just sit in, in peace and quiet and be still and know that you are God, speak to us right now, Jesus. Lord, whatever work you are doing right now in the hearts of these people this morning, may they respond. Please help them to respond, Jesus. May we be controlled and full of your spirit as we leave this place. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your good name. Amen.